We've all been taught all of our lives that there are just two things that are certain in life, and those two things are what? Death and taxes, that's right. Is that right, though? I mean, is that really right? I don't think that that's right at all. What about laundry? <laughs> I mean, really, isn't laundry pretty much a reality of all of life? I think so. Doing the dishes, that's another reality, another certainty in life. How about diapers? Yeah, if you've had children, diapers are a certainty. If diapers aren't a certainty for you and you've got little kids, I do not want to come visit. All right, I, I can't even imagine what that would be. I don't want to shake your hand after this service. Um, uh, nothing at all in that regard. There are a lot of things that there's no doubt about in life. I think that that is very plain. If you're going to choose to be silly or stupid at work, there's no doubt about the fact that that's the moment the boss is coming around the corner, right? And how about uh, the likelihood of Sidney Crosby scoring insane goals during the season? Kind of like the one he scored this last Wednesday. Did you see that? If you did not see that goal, you need to see that goal. So I'm going to show it to you. So you watch this. Okay, see that again. It went too fast. Here you go. Watch this. Oh. He flipped it up to himself. And Are you kidding me? That is amazing. Look at that. All right, one more time. We got to see it one more time. All right, because this is that incredible. And hand eye extraordinaire, Sidney Crosby. That is insane. Only with Sidney Crosby is there no doubt about the fact that he could score a goal like that. No doubt about it. That's what we're talking about today. We're concluding our sermon series, The Real Thing. We've been in this for a few months now in the letter of 1 John, and I've been learning so much. I hope you have also. And all along the way, and coming now down into this final conclusion, he is wanting us to be certain about things in our lives. He doesn't want us to have any doubt about certain aspects of our lives. And he comes right down to the nitty-gritty here as he wraps this whole thing up, and he gives us the foundation. The foundation, not just for the passage we're going to be looking at, but actually many people argue that this is the foundational verse for all of the letter of 1 John. It is this, verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. He doesn't want there to be any doubts among his readers as to whether or not they are in Christ, whether or not they have eternal life. And that was for his first century readers, and it's also for his 21st century readers, you and me as well. Go ahead and open up, if you haven't already, to 1 John chapter 5. It's where we're going to begin, or where we're going to be. These last nine verses of this whole letter that he writes are very instructive for us. As you turn there, welcome everybody, whether in the worship center, whether you're on the Moon Campus, whether you're in the response venue, whether you're listening online, it is good to have this time to open up and to be in God's Word. So please do so in your Bibles you have in your laps or your Bible app or whatever it is, however you access the Scriptures. I've enjoyed this series. I hope that you've enjoyed this series and have been learning what he's been saying along the way. And now he puts this big exclamation point on the whole thing as he wraps it up. This passage reveals John's heart that much more. He doesn't want any of us to have doubts about our standing in Jesus. But if we're honest here today, if we're honest about what has happened, what is perhaps right now happening in our hearts, we would probably say there have been doubts. 
In fact, today you might need to say, there are doubts that I'm just wrestling with greatly right now. That's okay, don't leave. If everybody left who's ever had some doubt in terms of their faith, there'd be a very small group of people left and nobody here to preach to them. Doubts are something that don't need to lead you or leave you in a place where there's great shame. But it should take us to a place where we have great interest in what it is that John is going to say to us as he sets us up with a verse like verse 13. Because it suggests to us that there might be something that he has for us that can help us in the midst of the doubts that we face. In in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the struggles when it comes to those things. So we should have our antennas up. We should be paying close attention to what is it he wants to say to us when he gives us that kind of a setup. So that we might come to the conclusion is that we might be able to live in a place where there's no doubt about it. What's he going to say to us? As John unpacks this force, there are some key areas where doubts often arise, where he says, no, you can have confidence there. We're going to take a look at what those are. And the first of those is this, you can have confidence in your prayers. It's an outline there, you can be jotting some of these things down, if you would like. Be confident in your prayers. He doesn't want us to have any doubts. And so as we just sort of set the table for this, let me just give you a key truth that I want to be sure that we walk away with before it's too late before we walk away, and it's this. The doubts that overwhelm can be overcome. The doubts that have existed in your life and maybe exist right now, those that overwhelm you, overshadow faith, overshadow the the, the joy that you might otherwise desire to experience, those can be overcome. How do we get there? Well, he says, here are some areas where typically we have struggle that we can have confidence. In fact, the first one of those, as I've just said, It's in your prayers. Look at the language that John uses and tell me if this isn't encouraging. Verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Who doesn't want to get from God whatever you ask? Isn't that what it's promising? Dear God, make the pirates win the World Series this year right? There's something I want to ask. Well, that might fall more in the realm of miracles, which is the series we start next week. We are. Miracles. This is going to be an awesome series. You got to come back for this. I'm really looking forward to it. Bring some friends with you. Taking a look at the miracles of God. Have you ever wanted a miracle for your own life? Is that even possible? Does he still do miracles today? We're going to look at all that stuff, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. All right, but here he's saying, apparently, whatever you ask, you can have. Dear God, make my hair start growing where I want it and stop growing where I don't, right? Maybe you've been there. Dear God, make ice cream a low-calorie health food. There are all kinds of things. Whatever we ask, right? Isn't that what it says? But yet, we kind of come at that and we think, whatever I ask, really? And it's like, well, maybe that's not exactly what he means. Maybe that's not exactly what he's saying. Maybe it's not just a blank check. And that we just kind of feel a little let down, don't we? Didn't you want it to be? Whatever you ask, just go ahead and ask, and God's obligated to do that. No, I knew that the promise was too good to be true. But let's not be too hasty with this, okay? John is writing to encourage readers and build them up. These are readers who have been facing a lot of challenges. False teachers have come. They've been trying to lead them astray. Things have not been going all that well. The last thing that John wants to do is pile on. 
The last thing he wants to do is give them some sort of false hopes or empty promises. He genuinely believes that there is something to celebrate in what he is calling them to and the confidence he's saying that they can have in prayer. And there is, but we need to make sure that we understand what it is that he's actually suggesting is the promise. What he actually wrote, look back at it again. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to what? His will. According to his will, he hears us. And you might be saying in your spirit, I knew there was a catch. I knew there was a catch. I knew it was too good to be true. It's going to have to be praying according to his will. And if that's the response that you have, can we just acknowledge that for what it is? If there's a little bit of a letdown in your spirit when you hear, oh, I guess I'm going to have to pray in God's will, can we acknowledge that that's either that we don't really want God's will or what we really want is our will? And that's why there's a little bit of a letdown because it's not just a carte blanche, whatever you want, you get, sort of thing. Do we understand how that's what really needs to be the conclusion? And if our prayers to God are really motivated with our will in mind instead of his, should we really be surprised when we struggle in our prayer? Should we really be surprised that we don't pray with the confidence that we ought to have because what we ultimately are doing is praying to the God who made us and fashioned us and formed us and said, don't do your, your will, please do my will. But yet, that's how we oftentimes come to God. Now, that's not to diminish in any way what's being promised here. You see, praying in God's will is not second rate. It's not less encouraging at all. First of all, just look at what he says here. John says that God hears. That's huge. That's huge. If you've got kids, like in that sort of end of diaper stage, I'm not sure why we're thinking about diapers so much today, but the end of diaper stage, kind of just a little bit older than that, you've probably heard them say something like, Mommy, 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 you're five feet away. Mommy, 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 right? They know that you can hear them. Mommy, Mommy, and pretty soon you get kind of fed up and you turn to them and say, I can hear you. You're just kind of irritated. It's like, would you please stop talking? That's not what's being said here. It says that God can hear us and God does hear us when we pray. It doesn't just mean he's aware of the fact that you're praying. When it says that God hears you, it implies that he hears favorably and responds to what it is that you are praying. That's what John says is the promise that we are being given, that God hears and he always responds. It may not always be what you ask for, and that's when we come into this whole idea of what it means to pray in the will of God. But what John is saying here is he's clearly telling us that our prayers matter and that God's will is done and affected by us when we pray. Do you believe that? God's will is done and is affected by us when we pray. You might not understand fully how that happens in all the different circumstances of your life, but that doesn't negate the fact that it does. Is it possible? Is it possible that the will of God allows for outcomes that are impacted that by what we bring to the table in terms of preparedness, what we bring to the table in terms of obedience, what we bring to the table in terms of faith when we pray. That's what God's word says. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. And prayer sets us up for the very best of that because it aligns us with the heart of God. It aligns us with the purposes of God, which ultimately are the things that we want to have done. The notion that I'm going to be better off pursuing my will over God's will is nothing other than pure selfishness. 
So to object in any way to this idea that it is God's will that I want to pray in conformity with, that somehow that's leading me to a lesser blessing, is simply misunderstanding the nature and the character of God. And if you've ever set off, if you've ever set off to try to pray genuinely in the will of God, there are probably a couple of things that you have bumped up against. One of those is that there are times that it is clear what you should pray for because you know that it is God's will. I don't have to wonder about whether I should pray about loving other people because God's will is already clear. I don't have to wonder about whether I should pray about sharing my faith with other people because God's word is already clear. I don't have to wonder about if it's wrong to murder and kill and steal and lie and own a cat because it's already plain that there is a right answer to that question. But there are other areas where that's not so clear. What I want to urge you toward is that you would not allow the fact that you don't have great clarity on a subject to impede you from praying completely in that area. In fact, many reasons in that would be to go ahead and pray all the more when you are not completely clear as to what the will of God is. Oftentimes you know what the will of God is. Don't even pray about it. Just do it. But oftentimes we need to get on our knees. We need to wrestle with God to come to the understanding of what it is that his will is. But don't let that stall you in prayer because you can't tell the future. You don't know what is going to happen. Come and get on your knees. When David, when David's son was dying, David went to the Lord. He pleaded with the Lord for his life. He didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but he pleaded and he expressed, this is exactly what it is that my desire is. But when David's son died, you don't find that David has ill will toward God. He doesn't question God. He actually gets up and he worships God. He praises God because he understands that God has carried out his will and he understands and relies on his sovereignty. And he's okay going forward. Jesus himself did the very same thing, essentially, in the garden on the night that he was betrayed and the night before the crucifixion. Here's what Jesus himself said. He said, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. If it's possible, I don't want this to be the outcome that is coming on me, but not as I will, but as you will. What a beautiful pattern for prayer that that is. I had the opportunity this last week to pray with one of our construction workers who is facing the possible return of his cancer. And as we prayed, I prayed for his healing. I prayed that there would not be a need to go back through those sort of cancer treatments because that was my will in the situation. And I told God, this is exactly what I want. I don't know if that's what the outcome is going to be, but it's what I want. And I don't think there is any shame and I don't think God is put off at all when we come and tell him exactly what it is that we desire in our hearts. When I pray for Patty and for Kindred and for Pam who are three pathway people who are all going through the same kind of cancer, I pray for their healing. I don't know if God's going to heal them. Some of them are very advanced in the stages of that cancer. I don't know what God is going to do in that. But I do know what I desire And I know that God is not put off by the fact that I'm expressing what it is that is the depths of my heart. And you shouldn't be shy about going to God and expressing what the desires of your heart are either. Because he is not put off by that. As long as you know that what you are praying is not outside the revealed word of God. Or the will of God. Which is revealed in the word of God. If you know that it's already opposed to what the will of God is. Then don't pray for that. Just get your life arranged in the direction that it ought to go. Because you already know. 
But don't be afraid. If you know what God's will is, then pray in it and live in it. If you don't know what it is, then pray according to the desire of your heart. If you know it's not opposed to the will of God. But leave the room for God to do what it is. Like David left the room for God to do what it was that God saw fit to do. So that at the end of the day, if it's not what your will was, you can still trust in his sovereignty and it doesn't derail you and you don't grow disillusioned. See, that's what happens oftentimes. We assume we are the arbiter of what is best according to our will, and if it doesn't happen according to our will and our timing, then we cry foul against God when the only foul was not him against you. It was you against yourself because you backed yourself into a corner where it's only if your own individual personal desire happened that the world, that the orientation of all things is going to be right. And ultimately, that's selfishness. Ultimately, that's idolatry that we're simply carrying out. We're advancing ourselves. We're putting ourselves over God. And again, this is not a secondary blessing for us to experience God's will instead of our will. It's actually the first blessing to experience his will because he's the one who made us and fashioned us and formed us. He's the one who created us. He is the one who sees the end from the beginning. He's the one who knows that if I give this, that's going to work out in your very best rather than if I simply give whatever they ask according to their will, we don't see where that may ultimately lead. And yes, there are going to be times when you don't understand why that was the will of God. Why he allowed that to happen. Why he didn't stop it. Why he didn't change it. We're not going to know in certain circumstances. Maybe not at all in this life. Maybe we we will have the grace of God that reveals that to us. But maybe we won't. But even if it doesn't, just as David understood, we can understand that God's will is supreme. And living in conformity with it is always going to be best. You can have confidence in your prayers. As this text goes on, John illustrates what he's talking about, but he does it in such a way that has left a lot of people scratching their heads. So I want to show you these verses. Verse 16, feel free to scratch your head if you need to here. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. What? <laughs> what is that all about? Well, it raises a few questions, and right at the top of the list, people want to know, well, what's this sin that leads to death? Right? There have been a number of things that have been suggested as to what this is, and we don't have time to go through all those, but I do want to give you at least a little bit of a taste of what some of the argument is about. One of those is that people say, well, this is referring to a specific sin that is being talked about right here. And so if you commit that sin, that's the sin that leads to death, and you're going to die. And so people throw out a lot of heinous sins, murder, genocide, pedophilia, adultery, lying to God, and all of those are vile sins to be sure. And there is some example in the scripture, I think of like Ananias and Sapphira, who committed a sin against people and against God, against the church, and and they died. There seemed to be a one-to-one correlation to that, but if this were the pattern that he's talking about, you would think that you would see more one-to-one correlation between people who commit a certain sin and then end up dying. 
Another thing that is suggested is that this is apostasy, that this is talking about people who have been followers of Christ and then all of a sudden they turn and now they're working actively against Christ. Now, depending on your theological convictions and constructs, that isn't even a possibility if uh, you would believe that once God has a hold of his children that he never lets go and that they can never slip out of his care. And so that what the circumstance would be is that this is really a person who never had a relationship with Christ in the first place. And depending on your theological convictions, that one isn't even a possibility. A third one, maybe one more that I would point out to you is kind of a heretical denial of faith these are people who say i don't want anything to do with jesus i don't want anything to do with the cross i think that is all foolishness and a basic approach to biblical interpretation suggests that the simplest answer is probably the best answer and that can be the case certainly here because john is writing to people who have been misled by these false teachers who are passing themselves off to be one thing when they were something else altogether they ultimately are denying faith and so these very well could be the people he's talking about and in the simplest understanding if a person doesn't know christ as savior then they are indeed headed for death spiritual death specifically in view here but it seems to be saying that these people shouldn't be prayed for and so is it then saying that we shouldn't pray for people who are outside of faith I mean, you've got family members, you've got friends, you've got neighbors who are outside of faith. Is it saying you shouldn't pray for them? Well, no, that's not what it's saying. You know, other places in the scriptures are saying very much that same thing. So what is being said here? I don't see John here saying to not pray for them, but rather that they're not the ones that he's focusing on here in the point he is trying to make. He's saying, no, I'm not really talking about them. Don't, Don't pray about them. That's not what I'm talking about. But we get trapped in this also. Whenever we read this passage, if you're familiar with this passage, if you've read it before, if you've studied it before, my guess is that you read these verses, 16 and 17, and immediately, immediately, the thing that we want to know is what is the unpardonable sin? What's the sin that leads to death? What's the one that we can't come back from? And that's what all the discussion about these verses is on. And that's not the point of these verses point of these verses comes right at the beginning of verse 16 where he is saying not here's what I don't want you to pray for but rather here's what I do want you to pray for and what he says is I need you to get on your knees and pray for brothers and sisters who are sinning that's what he wants you have anybody around you who's in sin now my question is are you shaking your head at them are you talking about them are you praying for them we're all sinners we are all in need of prayer and if we would spend more time praying for one another instead of shaking our heads at one another we might find that we find more people moving toward healing and toward righteousness instead of just having this division that rises up more and more and we kind of push them away because they're sinners what john is saying is don't push people away he's saying draw them near he's saying pray for them have an urgency in your spirit and in your heart that you would do something that would help lead them to the place that he would desire them to be. And there's no doubt that that can happen because his whole point here is that prayer makes a difference and one of those areas is certainly in the lives of other people. So don't get distracted by the big theological issue when really that's not even what these verses are about. Don't miss it because we've missed it so often. Think about the people who are around you in your life who need your prayer to be brought back from the place where they are in their sin don't just shake your head don't just 
push them off. Don't just talk about them to other people. Get on your knees and pray for them. It's a responsibility we have for others in the body. Can have confidence in prayers. Also in your victory, he says as he goes on. Verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Doesn't mean you stop sinning. You still have your sin nature. And you're going to until you meet Jesus. He's saying you don't have to be subject to that any longer. That there's a power to overcome. Well, where does that power come from? The verse continues. We know that, this is still verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, that's Jesus, keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Saying Satan is real, he's powerful, he's working to destroy people, and it probably only takes a casual look around you to see the fact that it kind of looks like he's winning. That's what John's readers in the first century thought too. So he acknowledges the reality around them, but he combats it with the reality within them. With the reality within them. Verse 18 Again, he says, you don't need to give in to sin because the one who was born of God keeps them safe. And this isn't the first time he's said it either. You may remember back in chapter 4, we looked at it. He had this very same concern on his mind about Satan, about the evil one, about the, the pressures against his people. And so here's what he wrote in that circumstance. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Yes, there are challenges that are out there. Yes, there are traps. Yes, you have probably fallen into those traps yourself. You might find yourself in that trap right now. But the good news is that Jesus can set you free. I need some help here, people. I said that Jesus can set you free. Thank you. Thank you. I need more help. All right? All right? Help me out. All right. Fantastic. You can experience that freedom right now. You don't need to wonder about it. You don't need to question it. You don't need to have doubts rise up within you. Remember that the doubt, the doubts that overcome are key truth. The doubts that overwhelm can be overcome. The thank you. Amen. Thank you. All right. They can be overcome. So how do you experience that? You don't experience it by going and winning that victory. Because you don't have to win the victory because the victory has already been won for you. You just need to claim it and choose to live it out. You can have confidence in your victory. He also says you can have confidence in your Savior. Verse 20, we know. This is an interesting way to start this. Have you noticed how he's been starting these verses? What's John want? He wants us to have confidence. Look what he says. Verse 18, we know. Verse 19 starts, we know. Here again, verse 20, we know. Also, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. From the very beginning of this letter, John has been emphasizing again and again that God has come in the form of Jesus Himself into our world so that He could be known. We've gone back, I don't know how many times, to chapter 1, verse 1, where it says that very thing. He starts, it says it at the start, and now He says it here. He puts a bookend on it. Verse 18, we, or 20, we've seen it. He has come and has given us understanding. And that understanding is all about 
about Jesus who came and taught and trained his disciples, who performed miracles, who entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, who died on the cross to spare us from our sin that we might have hope, who rose again in victorious life. He is God, and verse 20 says that we can be in him and that that leads to eternal life, that we do not have to have any wonder about, that we do not have to have any doubt about our position in Christ. The doubts that overwhelm can be overcome. The doubts that overwhelm can be overcome. That happens by simply acknowledging your sin and putting your trust in Him, which is something that you can do right now if you've not done it before. It's as simple as, God, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I'm putting my trust in you and what you've done for me. And you can have the assurance that John is talking about. You can know for certain that the victory is yours through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then John adds a little postscript in verse 21. Look at it. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is an interesting way to end this letter and and a little bit unexpected. It almost looks like he's introducing something new, but I think if we dig down on it, we'll see that he is not. It's an appropriate postscript. For one thing, he's, he's saying, dear children. It just, it just uh, follows along with what he's been saying all through this book. He's this spiritual father late in his life who is writing to his spiritual children, dear children. We felt the warmth of this all the way through this letter as we've read it. And then he just gives them his parting words, just a parting thought he wants to say. This kind of reminds me of the sort of parting words we give to our kids. If you've, had, if you've had kids who've kind of grown into that they're ready to drive stage and they've gone off and, they've, and you've given them the keys kind of for the first time for them to go and drive on their own for the first time, what is it that you say to them? I said, don't you dare wreck the car. No, I, I, I didn't say that. What I said was drive safely. Drive, just some parting words as they I still say that to my children. If they're home visiting, then they go, drive safely. Or if I know they're about to drive our way, drive safely. I don't know if anybody in the history of the world has ever driven more safely because they've been told that, but it just feels better to be able to say it, doesn't it? Parting words are important. Last words, final words are important. Drummer Buddy Rich died coming out of surgery in 1987, but as he was being prepped for surgery to go on in, the nurse asked him about his medication and said, is there anything that you can't take? And he smiled and looked back and said, yeah, country music. <laughs> Anybody want to take a guess at what, what uh, Leonard Nimoy's Spock's final text was? LLAP, live long and prosper. Any Trekkies out there? All right, we got a few. Okay, good. All right, last words are important. And they're important for John here to keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. An idol, of course, can be anything at all that comes in and keeps your eyes off of Christ, where it is that your eyes really ought to be. It can be just an interest. It can be a hobby. It can be an occupation, a career. It can be a possession. It can be a relationship. It can be anything, but it steals the place that the relationship between you and Christ ought to have. And if you allow an idol to creep into your life and into your heart, do you know what that brings with it? 
doubt. Doubt. Because if you allow something to take the place that God ultimately ought to have in your life, even if a lot of your life is oriented toward God, I mean, you're here, you're listening, but there's that area, it allows doubt to creep in. Do you think your prayers are as strong when you know that you've got sin in your life that really ought to be rooted out, but you're not? Do you think that you're going to approach the God whose will you are seeking to find if you're going to hold on to that idol at the same time? It's not. You're going to have doubts about the effectiveness of your prayers. You're going to have doubt about the victory that you're really experiencing because you're not having victory over Satan because you're giving in to Satan. If you allow that idol, idols are so insidious. I just invite you to examine what's going on in your heart and in your life. Ask yourself, what is there that I'm allowing to have something, some hold on my life that is so significant that it's keeping me from being all of what it is that God desires me to be. Until you cast down those idols, until you keep yourself from idols, you're going to continue to get tripped up in this and tripped up in this, and no doubt about it will not be a reality for you. And experiencing what John says, that you can know, that you can know that you have eternal life. There's going to be some measure of, uh, do I really Because I can see that in this area of my life, I really don't seem that interested in pursuing God after all. This is where our doubts come from. We allow idols. We allow strongholds. And so we come back to what he's been calling us to all the way along in this book. And we've said it again and again and again. That what he's asking for is complete and total devotion. He's not saying, God will be really, really pleased if you'll just give him like 60%, just so it's a majority of your life. He's not asking for that. He's asking for everything. And I can tell you, until you go there, the doubts are going to continue to come back. The struggles will continue to rise up. Your prayer will continue to be weak. Your victory will continue to be unsure. But in the moment that we choose what it is that he's called us to again and again, is the moment that we'll be able to say, I'm living a life that is fully pursuing God, which will be evidence of the fact that you are the real thing with no doubt about it. I pray that that can be us. I pray that that can be me. And John has told us exactly how we can get there if we're willing to go after it. And I believe that you are. But it's a daily getting up and committing this day anew to God. It's a measure of examining what's going on and wherever we see that thing that is keeping us from full devotion to God, that we get rid of it, that we get serious so that we might live with no doubt about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this letter. Man, so penetrating, so intense. It just comes at us, but it comes at us with the with a a loving, fatherly heart that desires to see us where it is that you would desire and that you would have us to be. So Father, I pray that we would be bold enough in our hearts and in our lives and our spirit to remove, to confess those things that are keeping us from you so that we might walk in the fullness 
of life so that we might walk with the sort of confidence that we might know beyond the shadow of a doubt like John wants us to know that we have eternal life. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my friends who are here where those areas of doubt have crept in that we would recognize that that's a symptom of something else and that we would recognize what that thing is what that idol is, and that we would purge it from our lives. That we would not be willing to walk from this place saying, yeah, I'm going to give God a little bit, but he can't have everything. Lord, help us to recognize how that's just going to put us in this pattern of failing, this pattern of doubt, this pattern of slowly trying to make progress and falling back Lord, you have a better way. May we make that commitment of ourselves fully and completely to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.